Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. We had a great uh, holiday. Hope you all did as well. Uh, we enjoyed our time uh, and are glad to be back, refreshed. Uh, hopefully you had a good time with family and friends. Um, let, me, let me just go ahead and pray and then we can, uh, we can get right into things. <clears throat> Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you that you, uh, you continue to speak with us. You give us your very word. You've spoken. You've breathed it out. And we pray that your spirit would make it come alive in our minds and our hearts today. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. So I have a question for you, I suppose, as we start here. Uh, how many times, how many times would you say that God has spoken to you in your life? Let me just, I'll just do a little number. We can uh, do a show of hands. How many times has God spoken to you? Once? One time? Just one time? Five times? Ten times? Fifteen? Twenty? Zero times? Very good. I'll let it get to the gold star for the day, right? Um, but but e e even though we believe, and that's what we're going to cover today, basically, what, what, what Linda just said, that God speaks to us in his word. Even though we believe that, haven't you had moments, and surely your friends have, have asked you this, if they know you believe that this is actually God's word and they think that's a little weird, but they still want to hear from God. Your friends want to hear something from God. You want to hear something from God, and you come and you read the Bible, and, and, and you say, well, I don't know, I can't hear it. Hello? It's not, uh, it's not speaking audibly. It seems like God's not, not talking to me. Um, and even as we do believe this word, it's hard in the real cut and thrust of life, it's hard to say when we're having a dry spell, as we call it, to actually be certain that God is talking to us. When you've been reading your Bible, when you've been going to church, when you've been praying for, for weeks on end and nothing has changed, surely you're prone to say, well, is God actually speaking? Is there anything actually happening? Mean, I, I know I'm supposed to believe it. I know I, I, know I, I, I say I believe it. But is anything actually happening today? Is there a place I can go where I can trust that God will always talk, whether I'm dry or wet or just mildly, you know, damp in my soul? Is there a place I can go to where I know that God will speak? I mean, can you imagine God speaking with total certainty, full authority, and maybe best of all, personally to you? I've only had maybe three or four times where people have said, I have a word for you, brother, from the Lord. I don't know if I've told you my story of the time I had, I, I got dreamed about when I was in college uh, at an intervarsity uh, meeting. You know, I, they, they had a dream team and they, they dreamed of me. And they said, I had a word for you. I, the Spirit showed me a dream about you. And, you know, that, that feels more real and more certain than any time we open this book, doesn't it? If you've ever had anybody say to you, I have a word for you. God told me something about your life that needs to be changed or that he's going to do for you. That feels more real than this right here. I think we all have to recognize that. But the good news is that every single one of us today, without me or you saying you have a dream or a prophecy or a vision or a miracle, everybody in this room, everybody who's uh, watching online can have today God speaking audibly, certainly, truly, totally to them. A sure and certain word, a steady word, an unfailing word. And that's what we come today to discuss the, uh, the, the doctrine, uh, what, what is called the doctrine of inspiration. 
the inspiration of the Bible. Um, we come to discuss today the, the doctrine of the inspiration. Before we do that, though, um, we have to really ask ourselves this basic question. Can we trust? Your view of the Bible depends on your trust of the authors of the Bible. Your view of what this is depends upon answering this question. Are the New Testament writers, are the New Testament writers trustworthy? Are they trustworthy when they talk about the Bible? Are the New Testament authors trustworthy? Or are you and I free to just invent our belief about God and about His Word? To put it very simply, we should want to accept what the Bible says about itself. We should want to accept what the Bible says about itself. The Bible's view of itself. And if we don't accept the Bible's view of itself, who cares about what it says about anything else? If we don't accept what the Bible says about itself, who, who cares what it says about life or God or anything else? If you're not wanting to, to, to look at the Word and say, what do you tell me, Word? Then, I mean, maybe there's some good stuff in here, but, but you can find it anywhere else. So why do you need to go here, in other words? Um, so that's why we, we want to discuss inspiration. Now, let me give a qualification here. I'm going to give you a quote by a guy named Warfield, B.B. Warfield. Uh, the, the, oh, he was called the Prince and Lion. He was the defender of orthodoxy in the last uh, beginning of the 20th century. Um, he gives this quote on the question of inspiration. It shocked me when I first heard it, but uh, I think it's right. He says this, We base the entire Christian system on the doctrine of plenary inspiration. I'll explain what that means in a minute. We base the entire Christian system on the doctrine of plenary inspiration as little as we base it on the doctrine of angels existing. Were there no such thing as inspiration, Christianity would be true, and all its essential doctrines would be credibly witnessed to us. Inspiration is not the most fundamental of Christian doctrines, nor even the first thing we prove about the Scriptures. It is the last and crowning fact of the Scriptures. The last and crowning fact of the scriptures. In other words, he's saying, look, uh, <clears throat> Christianity holds that inspiration is as important as angels. That is, it's not the most important thing you believe about the Bible. I think that's very important um, because it places this doctrine in its precise location. It doesn't mean that inspiration is irrelevant. It's important, but it's not the most important thing. And yet we are called to believe this doctrine, as we'll see, because our, our Lord himself, of course, teaches. So let's get into actually what this is. That's by way of introduction, just kind of locating where is this doctrine on the playing field of Christianity? Is it the most important touchdown pass you might run? No, it's not the most important thing. But it's also not unimportant. So let's, uh, let's locate it, uh, and then let's get into actually defining it. First... <coughs> Let me give you, um, I'll just quote Warfield again, and then give you some things about inspiration. Here's his definition. It's a big definition, but uh, we'll work through it. He says, inspiration is God's continued work of superintendence. That is kind of governing. God's continued work of superintendence by which he ruled over the sacred writers in their whole work of writing 
rendering that writing an errorless record of the matters he designed them to communicate. In other words, that God providentially governed the authors, the human authors of the Bible to communicate what he wanted them to communicate without error. So that's kind of the basic doctrine itself. Any questions on that complicated? Uh, well, I'll, I'll define it with these words that I have in the outline. Uh, any questions on that quote, the old 20th century, early 20th century language? Okay, seeing none, let me just get to the definitions here. Uh, we, we would argue, and I'll prove hopefully to your satisfaction from the Bible that this is the case, that inspiration is plenary. Today, I think we only use the word plenary when it comes to like a forum. You know, when I've been in the academy, you know, when I was going to conferences, they have a plenary speech or a plenary forum. I don't know what it means, and that I should I should look that up, I suppose. But what it means here is whole, plenary, whole, entire, all. In other words, the inspiration extends to all of the scripture, start to finish, all its parts. The entirety of the word is inspired. Second, verbal. Doesn't mean that you can speak, right? That's as good as you can. But, but verbal means the words, the whole words. That is not the thoughts, simply. Uh, the doctrine of inspiration means more than what you mean or I mean when we say, wow, that band was inspired. You know, Johnny Cash was an inspired musician. You may not think great. That's okay. You know, some of y'all even think that Bob Dylan was inspired, and that's clearly wrong. But regardless, um, we say somebody's inspired or somebody's inspiring. Oh, that was a really inspiring message. You know, occasionally I get that. Maybe you get that when you, you know, you, 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 you talk to somebody, you really inspired me. That's not what we're talking about. It's not what we're talking about. Um, rather, what we're saying here is that the words, not just Paul's thoughts, not just, not just Moses' thoughts, but the very words themselves, each word is inspired. Third, objective. Our doctrine of inspiration is an objective plenary verbal inspiration. It's not, therefore, subjective. This is often misunderstood, often confused, often confused. Um, you think about it, right? You, 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 when, when you pray, I think a lot of folks know intuitively that before they read the Bible, they need to pray to God. I think a lot of folks kind of get that basic idea. They may not pray rightly. They may not understand all that they're reading. But I think intuitively we kind of understand that we need help to, to get this word. And so a lot of us pray rightly, Holy Spirit, help me to understand the Bible. That's what we pray every time before we come to the, the preaching of the word. Help us to, to know your word, to see your word, to grasp it. Now, Sometimes we confuse that with inspiration. That, that's not inspiration. That's illumination. You want to get technical about it. In other words, to put it simpler, inspiration is not talking about the effect the Bible has on you. You don't get inspired. I don't get inspired. I mean, maybe you get inspired, but not in this situation, not, not, not in what this means. We're also not saying that Paul got really, really excited about Jesus one day. And then he just kind of wrote down his thoughts, kind of stream of consciousness style. We're not saying that, that God gave Paul some ideas and then Paul kind of helped God and kind of just formulated them out in his own words. Not what we're saying. It is objective. Let me give you a Packer's quote here. 
J.I. Packer, you'll note that I quote Packer a few times. I like him on this topic. He says this. I don't think it's on your outline. If the words were not holy gods, then their teaching would not be holy gods. If the words, if God just kind of gave some thoughts and then Paul kind of scribbled out his kind of interpretation of those thoughts, well, his interpretation could be right, it could be wrong. And so the argument here for inspiration, the doctrine, is not talking about its subjective experience on us or on Paul. Rather, we're speaking about an objective, verbal, plenary inspiration. Uh, finally, and perhaps the most, one of the most difficult parts sometimes to understand, is that inspiration has two authors. It has many more, but at least two types of authors, maybe. It has a divine author, and it has human authors. And how those two go together is a lot of source of conflict, but uh, we need to be get it straight. So, first of all, of course, the divine author, God. God is the author of the whole Bible. Human authors. Each of the books of the Bible are written by a human. That shouldn't hopefully surprise us. Um, they're written by a human. Now, the real question, as I just mentioned, is how do they actually connect? How do they connect? I think the word that I like to use, it's not a word that we use very often, is confluence. When I was younger, um, I read a book about the five big rivers in the world. I think it was written like in the 50s or 60s. You know, they had the Amazon, the Volga River, the Rhine, and they had the Mississippi. And I lived in, you know, Louisiana, and so Mississippi was a really big, big river. And I was always happy as a little boy to say, the Mississippi ends right in Louisiana. Yeah. And it talked about how all these other rivers, they, they flow into it, you know, like the Missouri or the Red or, you, you know, I forget. It's been a long time. You can tell me if I'm right or wrong. You know, you have this one big river and all the other rivers flow into it. That's confluence, right? They all flow together. The word literally means flowing together. And, and so how does, how does God and human authors, how do they all connect? They flow together. Or to put it in the fancy words of Warfield again, the scriptures are the joint product of divine and human activities, both of which penetrate them at every point, working in harmony together to produce writing that is not God here and human there, but divine and human in every part, every word, and every particular. It is 100% God and 100% uh, human, genuine. Every part, every word, every particular. It's not that God uh, kind of forces himself on these humans. It's not that these humans kind of, you know, get uppity and, and kind of just start randomly writing out things. It's that beautifully together, uh, the Bible is, uh, well, it's a confluence of God and humans. Um, Warfield continues by pointing out in the example of Paul, that God prepared Paul to be the kind of guy who would write the New Testament letters. His habits, his character, his personality, the fact that he had, he had to write in large letters, and so he needed, like many people then, a scribe to write out the real letters. That's why I do have this other quote. I hate to just quote Warfield, but he's, he's also very good. He says, look, if God wanted to give his people letters like Paul, compared to Paul, Compared to Paul to write them. And the Paul he brought to the, to the task was a Paul who would spontaneously write just such letters. In other words, Paul is not forced. He didn't have like this little, this little itch in the back of his head that said, John, 
God touching you to write a letter to the Corinthian church. Start today, end, noon. Hear the words. No. It's that Paul wanted to write a letter because he, I mean, you see the way he writes it. We'll get to one of the, one of the common alternatives to this position, which is kind of a robotic, mechanical understanding of inspiration. And I just can't, want many reasons why that, that's wrong, but one of the chief reasons is you read Paul's letters and he just bursts with love. He bursts with love to God. He, he bursts with doxology. He's praising God. It, it is, it is, if you read through him, he's getting this, this heavy doctrine, and then bam, he just bursts out in love. And you see the love he has for, 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 for Timothy or for other Christians in Italy, far, far abroad. He's not a robot. We know it from science fiction. Robots can't love. He's not a robot. He's a human. Real human, real God in this word. So that is, if you will, the definitional section this morning. Any questions on what that is? I really pause for water. It's getting dry in the winter. Any questions or comments or pushback clarifications I can give? Plenary, verbal, objective, dual authors. All right, let me prove it to you. Um, or maybe not. That's a bad way to put it. Let's go look at what the Bible says about itself. We begin first with biblical evidence for the Old Testament. And here we go to the classic text, the classic statement. 2 Timothy 3, 16. Could somebody read that? If you have a chance. I mean, I put it there, I suppose, but you can still, still read it yourself. While I turn there. The whole of the verse would be great. Now you read from the King James, right? The authorized version. Now I'm glad you, I'm glad you did. I, I actually wanted you to read Greg um, because you 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 gave you gave you know the the authorized version, which which have it very very clearly. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and that is of course the doctrine we've been talking about. Um, and yet that can be misunderstood because we moderns have our view of what inspiration is. And so sometimes, uh, at least in the ESV, we have a little bit of kind of trying to clarify that by saying that uh, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Both, of the, both are legitimate, as long as you understand what inspiration is. It's, it's, it's perfectly, it's actually, in some ways, a, a better way in, in the author, the King James Version. But um, it's this word. The Greek word, theopneustos. I don't usually include the Greek words in the handout, but so it's, it's an important word. Um, it's this breathed out by God. It's the origin of the Scripture. In other words, God did not have kind of pre-existent letters and then kind of just breathed on them. No, he, he breathed out these words. And notice here that whatever translation you have, it's the same, all Scripture. Plenary, right? All, not some Scripture. In fact, in verse 15... I should have had you all read verse 15. I'll read it for you. He's, he's speaking to Timothy. Timothy, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. 
The sacred writings. What are the sacred writings? Well, that's the Old Testament. You've been a kid. You're a Jewish kid in the first century. You read, you read the, the Torah. You read the Old Testament. And so Paul is saying that the entire Old Testament has its origin in God speaking its words. Right? God breathes out. All Scripture breathed out by God. As Packer says, just as God made the host of heaven by the word of His mouth, the breath of His mouth, through His creative fiat, we should regard the Scriptures as the product of a similar created fiat or similar created word. In other words, God made the world by the breath of His mouth. God made this by the breath of His mouth. Same thing. Same principle, rather. Um, questions on that verse? Comments? Clarifications? Moving on then. Second Peter 1, uh, 19. I may hit verse 16 as well, actually. I think I'll... Uh, you want to turn to Second Peter. That would probably be helpful for our purposes. Second Peter 1. And I know I put 19 on there, but I'll make a couple of comments about verses 16 to 18 as well. Um, Peter here is kind of trying to counter false teaching about Jesus, about when he's going to get back, when he's going to return, the second coming. And he says, he gives kind of two types of arguments in verse 16 to 18. So in 16 to 18, he uses eyewitness testimony. And then in verses 19 through 21, he uses authoritative documents. Eyewitness, expert testimony, and authoritative documents. You know, if you ever go into a courtroom in America, those are the two types of arguments that you'll find. That's the two types of evidence you'll find in the courtroom. Lawyers call witnesses. Lawyers submit documents. Peter has both. He gives eyewitness testimony. Look there at verse 16. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths. Sometimes folks see the Bible as just kind of like the common ancient Near Eastern you know, myth, a common Greek myth like Zeus or whatever. Um, but we are told repeatedly that myths are contrary to truth, contrary to the Bible. Peter wants everybody to know, when I tell you about Jesus... That's historical fact. That's verifiable fact. That's public information. It's not an impression. It's not my kind of hallucination. I wasn't on LSD. I, I, I uh, didn't have some inner experience. It's not a story I made up because I have a point like Aesop's fables. The Greeks and the Romans loved myths. They didn't go searching for Hercules. They didn't go say, where are the bones of Hercules? Where's Pegasus' corpse? They didn't go looking for the evidence for Hercules. But Christianity, like Judaism, sees itself tied to history, tied to public objective reality. Peter's saying, look, I saw the transfiguration. He, he says, verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He goes on to speak about the transfiguration on the holy mountain. He says, I'm not making this up to scare you straight. I'm not making this up to, like Paul Bunyan. You know, it's a tall tale. We saw his glory. We heard him speak. It was not heartburn that day. It was not a vision in my soul. And notice, by the way, his point is not just an academic one. It's not an academic point. It's actually, 
His desire is that you and I would be holy and would live in the light of the return of Christ. That's why we need to know that this really happens. One way to prove that Christ will appear in a glorious, fearful, amazing return is for Peter to tell you, I've already seen a glorious, fearful, amazing appearing of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's how I know he can do this, and he's going to come back. And do, He said he was going to come back. His point depends on eyewitness expert testimony. Second, verse 19 to 21, he stresses the word, the prophetic word. We have something, look at verse 19, we have something more sure. We have something more sure than a fearful appearing of Christ in the Mount of Transfiguration. We have something more sure. He says three things about this. First, he says this is the word of God. Men spoke, verse 21, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He says it is Scripture, this Word. We have it, present tense. The Bible is the Word of God. That sounds very, maybe kind of reductionistic, but the is is important. Some folks are hesitant to say the Bible is God's Word. A lot of folks say the Bible becomes God's Word when you feel it is God's Word. When it really has an impact on you, that's when the Bible hit really matters. That's when it becomes God's Word. Or it contains, you know, part of it's God's Word, like the good parts, the Sermon on the Mount. That's the really, that's, the, that's God's Word. The rest of it, you know, the history stuff, eh, we'll get to that in a few minutes, that argument. But all of the claims that Peter makes about prophecy, about the Word, well, in verse 20, he says, uh, literally, and he uses the Greek word graphe, which refers only to things that are written down. This scripture, no prophecy that's been written down, comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, his view of inspiration is verbal. It extends to the writing. It extends to the words that are written down. This, this proves, I think at least in part, that objective quality that objective quality that we talked about earlier, that it, the, the authority of God's truth is not in your experience of God's truth. The authority of God's word is not dependent upon your experience. Um, second, all right, the first point that Peter makes is that God's uh, word is God's word. Second, he says God's word is not less divine because humans write it. Let's get to the question of how humans and God work together in the writing of the Word. Uh, many claim, I mean, I should say not many, but some claim that Christians believe in a mechanical dictation theory, the kind of robotic theory we spoke about earlier of inspiration, that God uh, spoke and robots, you know, the, the human authors were kind of writing down just what they heard. Um, that's far more accurate a, def a description of what Islam believes about the Quran and what Muhammad did than what the scriptures themselves tell us. Rather, this last verse, verse 21, 2 Peter 1, 21, men spoke from God as they were carried along. That word carried is a very specific word. The word carried is not guiding. It does not mean directed. 
It does not mean controlled. It does not even mean leading. Rather, the men who spoke from God are declared to have been taken up by the Spirit and brought by His power to the goal of His choosing. doesn't mean that they were forced, but it means that they were carried along by the Spirit as they worked, as they wrote. That in all of their actions, this is what we heard from Warfield earlier, the Paul that he wanted to write is a Paul that he had provided for, that he carried along, the kind of Paul who would want to write letters to people. And yet, as he's carried along, this gives you the certainty that we can come to God's Word and know it's God's Word as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. All, what he writes is spoken by the Holy Spirit. It is the divine Word. In other words, the divine authorship of the Scriptures does not preclude active human instrumentality. I hate, I don't have a, that's a fancy word. Doesn't prevent humans being used as instruments. Actively themselves. So any, any questions on, on 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21? Again, what hopefully you're seeing here in, in a bumbling way a little bit that as we look at the witness for the Old Testament, we see that it, it begins to correspond to plenary, full, verbal words, objective, dual authorship, inspiration. And then finally, of course, we have Christ himself. Um, you know, if you, maybe you don't like Peter, maybe you don't like Paul. You should, of course, but uh, we, have, we have Christ himself. Packer says this, The Old Testament is received on the authority of Jesus. Its divine authority and His divine authority confirm each other. So to not accept both would be to accept neither. In other words, he's saying you cannot take the Old Testament uh, out of the equation. You can't just take Jesus and say, I love Jesus, but that Old Testament stuff... Eh. Which is what everybody does these days. Old Testament, God bad. New Testament, Jesus good. You can't do that because he took it seriously. He believed that the Old Testament was the word of God. So you can't take one and not the whole package. Or neither. Um, and just to indicate this, the, really the, the upper room discourse is crucial. John 14, 26 Christ is with his disciples in the room. Last Supper. John 14, verse 26. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, a lot of folks like to cut this version in half and say, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. Jesus only taught you some things. He gave you only part of the truth, and then you need a second special blessing from the Holy Spirit to get the second you know, helping. It's like having Thanksgiving dinner. You, know, you have the one helping, the first helping of turkey, and then you're still hungry. You need some more turkey. That's not what this verse is saying. You'll notice that Jesus Christ says he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. What are the all things? All that I've said to you. He'll bring to your remembrance what I have given to you. Now notice here, he is speaking to the 11 
uh, disciples, he is not speaking to every Christian in every place. His words apply specially to these guys before they apply to us. Or to put it simply, I think I have it here. Yes? Jesus creates the expectation that Spirit will reveal his mind, the mind of Christ, to the apostles. He creates the expectation that the Spirit will reveal the mind of Christ to the apostles. Or we might call it a promise of revelation by inspiration. Jesus creates the expectation for our doctrine of inspiration, to put it simply. The kind of view that we would hope to hold is what Jesus Christ expects us to hold. And that's hopefully why we hold it, not because we already have a doctrine. We've got to look for things to prove it. <clears throat> and this is where we begin to get from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We're not simply here talking about the prophets back in the day or the Psalms. We're speaking about the very words of Jesus Christ. The Spirit will bring to your memory. He will help you to remember what I have said. You know how faulty our memories are. Christ promises something better. Of course, we have more proof, if you will, biblical witness, I suppose, for what the New Testament says. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Paul says, the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord Jesus. Paul is able to equate his command and a command from Jesus Christ. In other words, the apostles had the understanding, not that they were kind of starting up a second Christianity, but that they were simply speaking authoritatively as Christ himself spoke authoritatively, that his words are their words, and their words are his words. That's what we see as well in 2 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 14. Paul equates his own command and the command from Jesus Christ. Um, of course, Peter mentions in, in 2 Peter 3, 16, 15 and 16, you know, he talks about our brother Paul has written some things implicitly equating Paul's words as authoritative. The point simply is that uh, from this very quick survey, of New Testament and Old Testament texts, we see the Bible itself says these are God's words. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Questions on any of that? Yes, sir. Tell me. Did the authors of the letters know they were writing Scripture when they were writing? At the Excellent, superb question. Uh, we're going to get in more detail to that precise question. Did the authors of the New Testament, uh, specifically the Old Testament, the New Testament letters, did they know they were writing Scripture? Uh, yes. Um, and I'll, I'll, I can discuss that when we discuss the canon. That's a, that, that belongs in our discussion of the canon. But very briefly, I think you could even point um, to, to what Paul says right here. The things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. There's an implication here that's not simply, hey, this is a good idea, um, but that, that this belongs in the category of the writings. It's like the writings, yeah. That, that's, but it's a great question, and uh, I hope to get to that in a couple of weeks when we discuss the canon. So that's, that's yeah, perfect, perfect question. Because, of course, you, you all may know, right, there, this is often said in college courses on religion, there are 200 Gospels out there. Why do we have four out of the 200? 
I'll let you ponder that, and uh, we'll answer it in a couple of weeks. As we, uh, part of the answer involves what Ted has asked. Other questions? I don't mean to delay answering, but. Uh... All right, let's move on then. A couple of alternatives here. I've already mentioned uh, both of these in passing. One is the mechanical dictation theory. This is kind of what often, uh, sometimes the view I've laid out here gets accused of being, often gets accused of being kind of a mechanical robotic uh, dictation. The mental activity of the writers is stopped. And they just write down words, as mentioned similar to the to the uh, Quran and how that was produced. It, but it denies the actual humanity of the Bible, denies the humanity of the writers, and um, it denies uh, so much of their style. Amos does not write like David does. Very different Hebrew. Same thing with the Greek. Peter and Paul are not the same. Um, second, I think this is probably much more of a common view among people who are in churches is partial inspiration or the good stuff. The good stuff, the stuff that I like, inevitably, is inspired. You may know, of course, that Thomas Jefferson, among many, uh, had a cut-down, cut-rate version of the Bible. He had the good parts, the parts that he liked, the parts that align with his vision of morality and of life. And uh, we may not go that, that direction, but um, that far, perhaps, but we tend to go that direction, the parts of the Bible that don't uh, call me out or don't challenge my view on, uh, on the world, uh, on, on uh, science or history or social taboos of our day, uh, we keep the good stuff. The parts of the Bible that I prefer, the parts of the Bible that I think God always speaks to me. The hard stuff, you know, the boring stuff, or just the plain, what seems to me to be scientifically or historically wrong, the errors, so-called the contradictions in the Bible, those can't be inspired. Therefore, I'll just take the good stuff. Of course, this raises two really, I think, uh, impossibly impossible to overcome issues. First, who gets to cut it up? Who gets to cut up the Bible? I'm, I'm not that smart enough to cut up the Bible. I think it's a real serious question. We don't, want, we, we don't like facing that question. Who gets to cut it up? And second, I think even more seriously, if there are actually, if you believe that there are errors in the Bible, and the Bible claims, as I think we've kind of shown already, that all of it's inspired, the answer is not to keep part of it. The answer is just to get rid of it. Just get rid of it entirely. If it's wrong about this, why would it not be wrong about that? You know, if it's wrong about this, why would it not be wrong about the other things, too? If it claims all of it's inspired, and it's not all inspired, because we know that a mustard seed is not the smallest seed. You've heard that text. It's a common argument, objection, Christ says, the mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. We know that's not the smallest of all seeds. Jesus is wrong. He's stupid and correct. Yes, sir. Yeah, great, great question. Um, Elijah asked the question about versions and copying errors and variants and 
Uh, this gets into the question of text critical science. Uh, but the quick answer is that uh, we would not view that the, the variance or a translation is inspired. Part of the quick answer is that we would argue that the original, what we call the autographer, uh, the original documents themselves are inspired. Um, now, uh, one of the objections of that is that we don't, we don't necessarily have them. Right? We don't have copies, the original ones. The counter to that objection, to the original position, uh, is that um, <clears throat> the variants that we have, that the, just to give you an, an estimation, there are about 100,000 variants uh, among the manuscripts in the New Testament. 99.999% of those are uh, simply the difference between somebody saying Jesus and the Lord Jesus, or Jesus and the Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus and Jesus Christ. I've given you four variants right there. Um, so the point is that um, while there may have been, trans there certainly were translation uh, difficulties and differences, and there are different manuscript traditions, and we're not, we're not here to get into all that discussion in two seconds. Um, the reality is that no, no fundamental doctrine uh, has, A, ever been affected by the, the areas of variation that we have. And second, um, that um, even with the King, for example, with the King James Version, there were other extant English translations at the time that were, that were available and apparent. Um, third, uh, <clears throat> there would be, you would and we'll get to this when we come to the canon, we also would hold that God providentially cares for his Bible. He cares for his word. He doesn't, uh, uh, he, he wants his people to hear it. So he ensures that that we can. Um, but you have a, another response. Sure. The I mean the ESV right here, you mean? Yeah. 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 So the question is, um, you know, is, is that really satisfying? Because we have uh, translations here, and obviously, even as we heard today, they differ, right? The King James and the ESV, among many others, uh, differ. And are we going to say that, that this one is the inspired one and that one's not, or the King James, the NIV is inspired and this one's not? Um, and I think that really gets down to the question of satisfaction. I mean, that's what the, the question is, um, as I pointed out, do, do we believe what the Bible states about itself, right? That, that these words are inspired. Um, not that this translation is inspired, right? But that the words, if they, were, if they were written down, are inspired. And by, <clears throat> by comparing, you know, this is again where we're coming to the, question of textual science and kind of comparing documents, um, you're, you're able to get to a pretty solid sense of, uh, of what, not just the essential doctrines, uh, but what, uh, what the, the whole of Scripture is talking about. You know, I mean, I guess, if I, if I want to close on this, I suppose, 
Um, let's ask the question. Is, is that okay for now? Let me kind of get into something that may be related, I think. Um, if we hold that the Bible is not just inspired, but therefore because it's inspired by God, we hold that it is without error, what does that actually mean? It means first that the Word of God stands over us and we don't stand over the Word of God. I think this is part of the issue that can come, not, not from you, Elijah, necessarily, but I think from, from, from some folks that I've had this conversation with before. Um, I think the danger for all of us is that we want to put ourselves over the Bible and judge it and say, well, this part's good, this part's not good. Um, but when you, when you say, look, the Bible's either only inspired in part or it's not inspired totally, you begin to make yourself the judge of God. Either God's not dependable or his word's not dependable. Now, this does get to the question, even as Elijah kind of sort of hinted at, what do we do with errors? And I'm not, I'm, there's no way I'm going to go through all the hundreds of so-called errors or contradictions or dates or issues people come up with. But I want to give you maybe three rules, three ways to kind of approach claims of error. Three ways to kind of approach when somebody says, look, the Bible contains this error in dating, or this guy was the high priest, and this guy was the high priest, they're different names, how can that work? Um, how do we approach claims of error in the scriptures? First, begin with what the Bible says about itself. Start with what the Bible says. We have to respect, we have to give respect to the Word, and not just to our, so often we, we privilege our own take. We have to respect the way the text argues for itself that I'll try to show you in a few minutes here. Second, we aren't, even as Elijah kind of pointed out, we aren't to ignore difficult problems. We aren't to ignore the reality of the death. Yeah, there are a lot of mainstream traditions. There are a lot of uh, variations. Uh, let's look at those variations. We need to realize the, the problems. Um, but we also need to realize the overwhelming witness of the Bible is that it's inspired by God. And if God is error-free, then we expect his word to be error-free, and the fault is in ourselves, right? And then finally, uh, what actually is an error, or what actually is a, a contradiction? Just because you don't agree with the part of the Bible doesn't mean it's an error. Three things are needed. The error must be in the original text of Scripture. It must be correctly interpreted. It must be proven to contradict a known fact in the world or from another part of the Bible. Um, differences don't equal contradictions, necessarily. So I'll leave you with that. I know that may not be fast, Dr. Everybody could get it. I had to rush through that. Um, but in conclusion, I think we all should want to speak about the Bible the way the Bible speaks about itself. That, that's simply it. Um, we can think too highly of our own view of the Bible. I think that can happen sometimes in our circles. That, that's bad. But we can never think too highly of the Bible's view of itself. We can exaggerate our own authority, you know, when we come to use the Bible. We cannot exaggerate the Bible's authority to handle ourselves. So to get back to the point I raised at the very beginning, if you want to hear from God, this is the book that tells what he said. If you want to hear from him, this is, this is where you should go. We are to immerse ourselves in the word. There is nothing more sure and nothing more Certain. Um, Jim, why don't you um, close us in prayer if that's okay? Thank you all for your time. Dear Father, we thank you for this time, this place, and 
for this opportunity to study about your holy word. Thanks to give us assurance and how we view it, use it. And we do thank you that your Holy Spirit, you accomplish your purposes through it in every case. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.